God's Word in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Mommy, Daddy, watch me. Those short words, that little phrase is repeated over and over on playgrounds, sports fields, houses, anywhere children go. They are the cries of children wanting to be seen, appreciated, and loved by their parents for the actions they do. It's not enough to make the amazing jump off the swing set. You want your father to watch. It's not enough to be in pain and agony over the scraped knee. You want your parent to show sympathy, concern, and compassion. That's why the child will cry when they scrape their knee, look around, see no one, stop crying, walk in the house, and then when they know their parents are in earshot, start crying again. It's a basic fact. We want to be appreciated, and we live for the approval of someone. We may disagree on whose opinion matters and what actions should draw praise or rebuke, but everyone is seeking approval based on their actions. And yet, one of the most basic confessions of being a Christian is that we're sinners, meaning we have a nature that does not live in submission to God. Thus, we have attitudes and action that don't seek God's approval or standard. But when we're saved, we want to serve God. We want to be like Him. That was the whole point of the prior section of verses 25 through 32 of chapter 4. It ended with these words in verse 32 of chapter, 30, of chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. God's forgiveness through Christ is then the impetus for us to want to imitate that. Hey, Dad, watch me as I forgive like your son. And that leads to the verses we have today, because notice what they say again. Verse 5, verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You know, these verses give us a road map for how we can live like our Father in heaven. Of course, they're not calling us to be omniscient or omnipresent or omnipotent, but they're calling us in God's holy character to live holy lives, that we would know how to live right and wrong or what people call ethically. And we'll see in these verses, and you can see this on the back of the bulletin, we'll see three things. First, in the beginning of verse 1, we see the basis of our right and wrong, the basis of our ethics. It's being imitators of God. Then we see in the second part of verse 1, the motivation for ethics, motivation for doing what's right and wrong. Well, it's as beloved children. And then lastly, in verse 2, the blueprint for ethics, it's our love. Well, it begins with the basis, and that is we're imitators of God. You know, we learn by imitation. Not only do we imitate, but the more we value the person or the activity, the more we desire to imitate. Growing up, we didn't get a lot, watch a lot of television, but somehow sports was something that my parents always let me watch. So the summer and winter Olympics were like prime opportunity because there were sports on all day. And even for a young boy in San Antonio, Texas, the desire to speed skate after watching Dan Jansen fly around that track was insatiable. Now, of course, there was no ice in San Antonio or most of Texas, but I wanted to do it. 
You see something great, and you want to imitate it. And that's how we are as people. When we see something great, we want to then go do that in like manner. You know, this is what happens with children. They see what their parents do, and when they love their parents, they want to respond. We are creatures of imitation. You know, I've shared before of the mother, this is not Sarah, by the way, of the mother who was having a lunch date with another mother and their friends coming over, and she was busy, as we often are, getting the house ready, getting the food prepared, running around like crazy, and then just when they knock, she takes a breath, tries to act like she's been calm and relaxed, just, you know, just waiting for them to show up, nothing going on. They come, they sit down, and she says to her child, will you pray for the meal? And the child says, well, mommy, what should I pray? She says, well, just pray what I do. Imitate me. So the child says, dear God, why did they have to come over today? <laughs> you know, we are creatures of imitation. And so we have to be careful who or whom are we imitating. And throughout Scripture, we're told time and again, be imitators of God. I want to show that this is not just one little theme, but a theme throughout Scripture. So if you have a Bible, get your fingers ready. We're going to turn to several verses. First, let's go back to Leviticus, the third book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Turn to Leviticus chapter 11. We'll look at verses 44 through 45. Leviticus 11. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. If you hit Numbers or Deuteronomy, you've gone too far, so go back a book or two. Or if you're using a phone, just scroll up a little bit and hit the Leviticus. So Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 through 45, it says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Why? For I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God's call for us to be holy is based on the fact that we are to imitate Him. God's holy, so we act in response. God doesn't just set up some arbitrary standard like, I'm God, and then here's these rules. No, our character is like God's holy character. Well, Jesus strongly believed in this God-imitating ethic, and He preached it in His famous sermon, what's often called the Sermon on the Mount. So turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll look at verses 43 through 48. So, well past Psalms, the end of the Old Testament, Matthew chapter 5. If you get to Mark, Luke, or John, just go back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew chapter 5. And in this sermon, Jesus says, beginning in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, what? As... Your heavenly Father is perfect. All those things Jesus, Jesus just commanded. Love, prayer for enemies, all these things. Well, why? Because that's what God is like. We are imitating God. Jesus' disciples caught this ethic. So flip over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
So you have the book of Hebrews, that's a big one. Hebrews, James, and then first and second Peter. If you get to first and second, third John, you've gone a little too far. Revelation, too far. So after Hebrews, you got the book of James, and then first Peter chapter one, verse beginning in verse eleven. First Peter one eleven sorry, first Peter one fourteen. As obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, verse 15 of chapter 1, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Like Leviticus in the Old Testament, Peter re-emphasizes in the New, we're to be holy, because what? As obedient children, we're God's children, and we want to imitate our Father, or flip over Two books, we read this earlier, 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God acts a certain way, and then that leads to us imitating him or flip over two short books third john probably only one flip of the page maybe two third john only one chapter so verse 11 because here we see who we imitate actually shows what family we're part of third john verse 11 beloved do not imitate evil but imitate god good whoever does good is from god Whoever does evil has not seen God. Now we won't turn to this one, but Jesus said a similar thing in John 8, 44. The religious leaders were attacking him and he tells them, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desire. Their actions showed, who are you imitating? You're imitating the devil and so he is your father. Now as Americans, we think, well, I'm only influenced by my own thoughts and actions. But really, what we do is so much affected by the people around us. We are people of imitation. You know, we are affected by what those around us do. Now, we don't think so, but consider even our clothing. Why do we wear the clothes we do? Well, because that's what people in our society, not that they sit down and decide it, but our culture has decided if one of the men walked in in a plaid skirt, we would raise an eyebrow. But you do that in Scotland, and it's no big thing, because they're imitating what they do. Or consider something as simple as, how do we take a picture? If you look back at your ancestors, you may think they were the grimmest, most serious people that ever lived, because that's, well, it's a picture. Why would you sit there with some cheesy grin on your face? Today, what do we say? Look at the camera and say, cheese. Why? Well, we're imitating what everyone else in our society does. Is it right or wrong to smile or be serious? No, it's just how you take a picture. It's not right or wrong. But my point is that we are creatures of imitation. We live like those around us. That's, that's why we should be very careful about who we let be our best friends and who are the people that we admire. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. If you hang around people who are not leading you towards godliness, whether you recognize it or not, 
you're slowly going to become imitators of them. You know, wisdom realizes it's not just enough to know right and wrong. You can say, well, that's right and this is wrong. You also need to love it. You need to hang around friends. You need to watch movies and listen to songs that aren't subtly attacking what's sinful or subtly praising what's sinful. Rather, we should listen, watch, and be involved with what is praising and honoring us, honoring God and leading us to holiness. You know, there's a saying, I don't know if they could really prove this, but I think there's some merit to it. You've probably heard it. You become like the five people you spend the most time with. Now, that's not scripture, and I don't know how they could prove that. Maybe it's six people, maybe it's seven, but we've all seen that you see someone, and you look at their friends, and over time, they become more and more like them. Thus, if you want to be serious about being an imitator of God, as Ephesians 5.1 calls us to do, then you need to surround yourself with people who want to follow God, who love Him, who want to imitate Him. And a misunderstanding of this issue is why, why so many Americans have missed the importance of church. Flip back to Ephesians, but look at chapter 4. And many people in America, when they think of church, they think, well, that's a place you go. You go listen to a sermon, you sing some songs, then you might come back a week later. Except the New Testament has a much broader vision of what a church should be like. Ephesians chapter 4, 15 and 16, it says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know, here in these verses it's being commanded that each one of us should be speaking the truth in love to one another. Not just I go to a place and a person up front tells me something, but throughout my week I'm engaging with people and they are speaking the truth in love. And that is how we grow up into being the type of imitators of God that God wants us to be. And this explains why there are some verses in Scripture that seem kind of odd at first. You may have read them and thought, is that right? Something like 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where Paul says, be imitators of me. I'm not supposed to imitate you, Paul. We're supposed to imitate Christ. And yet he adds, as I am of Christ. You know, we should imitate Christ. Sorry, we should imitate Paul as far as he imitates Christ. Or Hebrews 13.7 that says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. And with that statement, you become like the five people you spend the most time with. This implies that you're spending time with Christians. You can't imitate someone that you don't know what they do in their life. You know, people change not by just being taught, though I think teaching is very important, but they also change by being caught, by seeing you live out your Christian faith in action. So we need to ask ourselves, are we surrounding ourselves with godly people, with people in this church? Do we think of how can I integrate my lives with others? Or do you just show up once a week, attend to the service, which is good, but that's all. I believe the New Testament is calling us more than just attending an event together. The New Testament is calling us that to be imitators of God, we need to be in each other's lives. 
If we're going to resemble the family of God, then we must surround ourselves with the brothers and sisters of Christ. And probably the biggest hindrance to this, though, is that we're Americans. We want to do what we want to do. You know, our society even encourages us, look, follow your own heart. It seems inauthentic. You're going to model your life after someone else, some being like God. And, you know, we're going to see next we should love like God does. And I say, well, that's great. Yes, you can love. That's good. But then after that, in the verses to come, it's going to have some words about sexual ethics, about marriage, about family. And, well, we don't want to imitate God in that. Yet, while our society calls us to be true to ourselves, does following your heart really lead to a blessed life? I mean, when you let the words come out of your mouth that were in your heart, do they always lead to blessing? Or do you sometimes wish, man, I kind of wish I had held on to the words that were in my heart because now I got a bunch of problems I got to fix. Or when we follow our heart on our spending spree, do we feel blessed when we get the bill? And maybe you've had something in your life, I know I've had this before, where I think, I want that so badly. If only I can have it. And then I get it, and it's good. It's even sometimes pleasurable for a little bit. But then later I think, why did I think that was going to be so great? Your heart, though it's not always wrong, is often not always right. That's why Proverbs 3, 5-7 through 7 declares, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. True life, true joy comes in learning to imitate God. Not forging your own path, not being true to yourself. It's as we deny ourselves, as we follow Christ, that we find true and lasting joy. So we've answered How do we know what's right and wrong? Well, it's based on imitating God. That's what's right and wrong. But that doesn't answer another question. Well, why should we do it? And that's the next part in the end of verse 1. The motivation for ethics as beloved children. Now, we've all asked or maybe been asked, well, why should I? Why should I do this math homework? Why should I clean my room? Why should I forgive when they've treated me so badly? Why, why, why? And notice, Paul doesn't give the answer that many people think a religious person would give. Paul doesn't say, well, you should obey because you want God to be happy with you. He doesn't say, you should obey because you want to make sure you go to heaven. The logic given is actually the reverse. It's not obey to become children of God, but rather obey as beloved children of God. Like all of Paul's ethical instructions, why we should do something is based on God's prior actions for us. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll look at verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know, due to our sin, 
We were not children of God's love. Rather, we were children of His wrath. Yet by God's great mercy, the story didn't end there. There's redemption, forgiveness, and adoption into God's family. And not because we filed for a change of family status. Not because we were really good for a long time and then God allowed us to be part of His family. No, notice why. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. John 1.12 succinctly says, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And so, we don't obey to become God's children, but neither is it true that we are all God's children already. Rather, we were children of God's wrath. And we obey because we are already loved. loved. Or we might say we love because He first loved us. We obey because we're beloved children, not in order to become beloved children. And when you have that beloved parent, you want to be like them. That's why children like to get the kitchen play set, because they want to cook in their kitchen like mom and dad does. That's why the child gets the little mower that pushes the bubbles out as they walk behind dad, because they want to be like dad. We love to imitate what we love. And God's love for us motivates us to imitate Him. And yet, what does imitating God look like? Well, in one answer, you need Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 to answer that. But we're given a blueprint here, or a sketch of what that looks like. Ephesians 5 verse 2, we're told, And walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the third and last section, the blueprint of ethics, love. You know, the blueprint for our actions is that we must walk in love. Now notice this is walk, meaning not just a single action, but an ongoing lifestyle. You know, some tasks we have have clearly definable endpoints. When you finish your degree, you graduate. And you're done. When you finish your checklist for cleaning, you're done. It's all cleaned. You might fold the last sock and be done with the laundry. However, you will never be done with loving people. Loving others is not merely an action to be completed, though there are actions to do, but rather it's a lifestyle, a mindset that leads to action. And Jesus saw this as the blueprint. For as we read in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40, when a religious leader asked him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And this says, and Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus also said, John thirteen thirty-four, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, Jesus clearly knew his Old Testament. He knew this was not a new commandment. In fact, you can read it in Leviticus 19, 7 and 18, 17 18. But what Jesus was saying is, this is so radically new, it's like it's brand new. You may have gone to an antique car show 
and seeing a car that was refurbished. And people say, wow, it's like brand new. Well, no, it's actually 60, 70, 80 years old. But because it's been so refurbished, it's like new. Well, how did Jesus refurbish the command to love? Well, Ephesians 5, 2 tells us, As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The, Christ's love means he gave himself for us. Jesus, by dying in our place, taking the punishment for our sins, he showed us that God's love is self-sacrificing, even to the point of death. As Jesus said in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Now, definitely, those in the Old Testament knew they were to love, but that love went so far that you would die for the other was not something that they would have considered. And Jesus' command to love is also radically new in the sense that it's for anyone who needs compassion, even our enemies. As we read before in Matthew chapter 5, 44, where Jesus said, I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And recognizing what love truly is matters. Because we often hear people use the word love, but I'm not sure they agree with what the Bible means with the word love. You know, we sing, all we need is love. But what does that love even entail? Well, this makes clear love is not just a feeling. Love is not just avoiding doing other people harm. You know, I hear this a lot. I'm a loving person. I don't harm anyone. Well, that's great. You don't harm anyone. I'm glad you don't harm people. But love is not just a passive avoidance. Love is an active Doing something for other people. Love is action. You know, God didn't just say, you know what? Okay, I'm just not going to not punish them. No, he also sent his son and then adopted us. He actively does us good. And so Jesus says love means sacrificing. That might be our desires, our possessions, our talents, and our dreams. But we sacrifice those for others. And if we live in this loving manner that imitates Christ, we'll show we are God's children. As we read earlier, 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You know, the claims here is that you love God who is invisible. But that's seen through our actions to those who can be seen. In other words, anybody can claim, I love God. But we can't necessarily see that. But we can see, well, how do you love the person next to you? The person in your family, the person at your workplace. You're a person who truly knows God. A person who's truly part of God's family will have the family resemblance of love. As one man noted, it is a false boast when anyone says that he loves God but he neglects his very image, which is right before his eyes. And we should take this to heart. You know, the evidence that we're saved is not how many verses we have memorized, though it's very good to memorize Bible verses. The evidence of being a child of God is not attending a worship service, so that is a good thing to do. Rather, the family resemblance, when someone sees them and goes, oh, you're just like your dad, is when you love those around you. Not just put up with them, tolerate them, but you seek to do them good. 
Notice as well that the evidence of being Christian is not just having conservative morals and values and standing up for those values. Now, I hold to conservative morals and values, and I think it's good at times to stand up. But you can hold to all the right values. You can champion all the right causes while not actually loving the people who disagree with you. While not actually doing that out of love. God's family loves their enemies and prays for those who persecute them. And Paul adds something interesting here. He says, who loved us and gave himself up for us. And then he adds a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, sacrifice and fragrant offering ties into the Old Testament sacrificial system. Because whether it was the burnt offering, the meal offering, peace offering, or sin offering, all of those are talked about and then say in the Old Testament that they are pleasing aroma to God. Now, of course... God doesn't have a nose. He doesn't have smells that physically please or disgust him. Yet, just like we might say, your attitude stinks. So God says that there are certain actions, there are certain sacrifices that are like a pleasing aroma to him. And the ultimate sacrifice and pleasing aroma was Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Paul brings this up now to highlight that though our sacrifices in this life will never match Jesus' ultimate sacrifice, we can please God through our sacrifices for God. You know, yes, our sacrifices are no longer bulls and goats because Jesus gave that ultimate sacrifice and fulfilled that. Yet the New Testament tells us three different ways that we can do sacrifices that are pleasing to God. These involve our body our praise, and our giving. Let's look at these briefly. First, we can sacrifice our body for God. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In response to God's love for us, we delight to use every part of our body to serve Him. Some of you may know the, the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. And in that hymn, the composer gives all these things. Take my lips and let them be. Take my feet and let them be. And over and over uses all the various aspects of our body and wants all of them to be always only for my king. You know, God calls us to give our bodies for him. You know, that's in contrast to today because many people say, well, you know, God can have my spiritual life, but I can do whatever I want with my body. It's mine. And yet the New Testament says, no, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And that is a sacrifice. When we do that, it's a sacrifice to God that's a pleasing aroma to him. This leads to the second sacrifice, and that is of praise. Hebrews thirteen fifteen declares, through Jesus then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Out of delight in God, we respond with our lips giving Him praise. So do your lips get used for the praise of God inside and outside of church? When you're here, do you delight to sing praises to God? And... For all people, but especially the children, let me encourage you to sing with as much joy as you were at a birthday party. As much joy as when you beat whatever video game you've been trying to beat for weeks. Because God is much better 
than the best birthday present or beating the hardest video game. And so when we sing, it's not how many more verses, how many more songs till, okay, we've checked off the first three, two to go. May your lips and your face show praise to God that what a joy it is to sing to my God. And when you do, we're being told here that is a fragrant aroma. God smells that and goes, oh, that's so pleasing when my people sing joyfully to me. The third sacrifice is from the next verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 16. It's about giving. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Paul similarly, Philippians 4.18, he writes, I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, and he adds, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So how do we respond to the one who gave his life for us? By tangibly and practically giving to others. You know, our words of love for God are empty if we see those around us in need and our hearts are closed against them. You know, if we love God in heaven, we will love his image on earth. And so when you see opportunities to help those in need, does your heart say, well, this is mine. I work for this. I earned it. I get it. I get to spend it how I want. Or do you say, God's blessed me so much. I want to bless others. It pleases God when we use our resources to share and expand his kingdom. And this sermon really delves into a tricky dynamic. And that is one that often Christians wrestle with. And even Keith kind of highlighted at the beginning of the service. Is Christianity about rules or is it about a relationship? I haven't heard this for a while, but... I remember in high school and in college, I'd often hear Christians say, you know, I'm not in a religion. I'm in a relationship. Now I understand their sentiment. We've even noted how we're not God's beloved children due to our keeping of his rules. Yet in his love for us, God has given us some rules. After Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, we're going to walk through all these various ways God wants us to live. But God didn't give us those rules to keep in order to become his children. Nor did he give us those rules because he really wanted his children to suffer. He gave us those rules out of love. Jesus himself says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So it's not that God's rules don't matter. And it's not that we have to keep them perfectly to be saved. Rather, God's commands, his rules are a blessing to us that we should see as such because really they're a reflection of his character. And as we imitate him, we will be blessed in this life. You know, we obey, we serve God, not out of a uh, duty that thinks, oh, this is a drudgery, but hell's really bad, so I better obey. But out of love and delight for our master, our Lord, even better, our Father. Let me conclude with a story that I think paints this picture well. Tim Keller tells this. He tells of a time where there was a kingdom. And in this kingdom was a poor old man. This poor old man, all he had was a little house, and he tended a little garden next to it. And one year, he grew his garden, and in it he got the biggest, most sweet-looking, juiciest-looking carrot he'd ever grown. And he loved his king. And so he took it to him, he said, My lord, 
This is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. Now, you can imagine the king probably thinks a carrot. (laughs) Okay, thanks. But the king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as the gardener turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard all this. And he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you give him something meaningful? So the next day, the nobleman came in before the king leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and then sent the horse out with his servants. Well, the nobleman stood there perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. You know, do we want to obey God? Do we want to imitate him because... We think, okay, this is getting me back. I really, I want heaven. That's I got to do this. I really don't want to. Or do we obey because we've been enraptured by God's love for us? Because we see how great he is and we want to be like our dad. And we'll be going through some verses over the next couple weeks, months, that many in our society think, ugh, that is horrible. And yet, these verses are meant for our good. They're given to us by our loving Father, and it's as we imitate Him, as we live like Him, that we will be blessed, and it'll be our joy to follow Him in those ways. Let's pray. Oh Lord, You are not just our Lord, You are a kind, gracious, and generous Father, and I pray that You would help each of us to see that, that You're not just a taskmaster, but You care for us. You're that Father who waits for us, and runs to us when we return home. And Lord, so in the trials and in the triumphs of this life, we come to you knowing you're good and that we can trust you. Ask that you would help us this next week to be joyful children who delight to follow you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.